Good evening. Welcome back to Word Here and There. I'm Carolyn, your podcast host. Of course, today is Martin Luther King's birthday, which is now a national holiday that we celebrate. That Martin Luther King was born today in Alabama, in Atlanta, I'm sorry, in 1929. A famous quote by him says, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. There are a few people, unsung heroes of the civil rights movement, and here are some of their stories. Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Medgar Evers, John Lewis, these names ring through history as leaders of the vast, sprawling events that constituted the civil rights movement in which African Americans struggle for equality during the 1950s and 60s and beyond. But the movement could not have succeeded without thousands of people of all races making important, if often overlooked, contributions. And without millions of people moved by their efforts, deciding that it was time to do the right thing. For Black History Month, we went in search of those men and women who did their part to change the history of America. Without seeking fame or reward, simply because they saw the need to become part of the solution. And here are some of their stories. Willie Pearl Maggie King on the Birmingham Jail Letter. He is living in Montgomery County, Maryland, and he is 82 years old. He he worked from 1962 to 1966 as a member of the Martin Luther King Jr. executive staff. Where I lived in Atlanta in 1962, the landlady rented her extra bedrooms to college students and working young ladies. Dorothy Cotton lived on the first floor. Cotton is known as a pillar of the civil rights movement. One day she asked if I was looking for work. I'd never worked in an office. Dorothy gave me an address and said, you should go here and apply. That is how I got hired at the Southern Christian Leadership conference. They put me at the receptionist's desk, and I started reading brochures about this place where I was working. I'd never heard of civil rights before. Then, one day, this gentleman came in and greeted me, asking me about my church and my family. I realized that this was the man in the brochures. He was in charge of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and his name was Martin Luther King, Jr., Dr. King asked me if I would go with him on certain trips. I was elated. In December of 1962, I went with Dr. King to Birmingham to organize a people-to-people tour of the state of Alabama. We visited towns all over the state, and this is how the Birmingham movement got started. This was to be nonviolent protest in the heart of Jim Crow. The FBI told Dr. King there are credible threats against your life. We cannot guarantee your safety. Well, Dr. King called us together. He said, if you decide you don't want to go on this trip, that is too dangerous. I will not be offended because we could be killed. I looked around thinking it would be canceled, but no one else said no. I went off and did my crying then came back and said, I'm going.
On Good Friday in 1962, after the protest in Birmingham began, Dr. King was arrested. A group of eight ministers wrote an article, A Call to Unity, saying Dr. King was an outsider and urging locals not to participate in what he was doing. Dr. King decided that he was going to write an answer. He was in jail, and he asked the jailers for pen and paper. They said, you're not in a library. You don't get anything to write with. He wrote on the edge of newspaper, on toilet paper, on sandwich bags. His attorney, Clarence Johnson Jones, hit the scraps under his suit jacket and slipped them out the jail. We had to put together this jigsaw puzzle. We were on the floor trying to figure it out, scotch taping things together. Dr. King's handwriting was not the best. The lighting was terrible in his jail cell. That is how we developed the letter from Birmingham Jail. When we released it, no one paid attention at first. Only when the Bull Connor, the city's commissioner of public safety, ordered fire hoses and dogs onto the demonstrators in Birmingham Kelly Ingram Park did we start getting requests for the letter from Birmingham Jail. I could not mimograph enough copies. The letter became one of the most important documents of the civil rights era. If people read that letter today, they will understand what Dr. King was doing in Birmingham and why he was fighting so hard for civil rights. In my opinion, none of his speeches or writings will give you a clearer vision of his mission. My whole career was helping people. That was instilled in me by Dr. King and others, and I worked with so closely, I can't think of a better way to spend a life than helping people. Charles Person on the Freedom Riders. He is now 81, living in Atlanta. Civil rights activist, the youngest member of the original Freedom Riders, later a Vietnam veteran and the author of Buses Are a Coming. My dad was a patriotic veteran of the Second World War. He was optimistic that change would come for black people. This is our country, too. That's what my dad preached. My journey began when, as a high school senior in Atlanta, I applied to Morehouse College in Atlanta and was accepted. When I got to campus in 1960, the sit-in movement was beginning. I was there every day. The idea was to enter a restaurant sit at the counter, and shut the restaurant down because we knew, as black people, we wouldn't be served. Ultimately, I was arrested with others. In 1961, the Congress of Racial Equality organized the first Freedom Ride. The idea was to challenge the non-enforcement of the Supreme Court decisions that ruled that segregation on interstate buses and in-bus terminals was unconstitutional. The southern states ignored these decisions. Our goal was to ride the bus south and sit where they said we couldn't. This was not civil disobedience. The law was on our side. I was 18 and needed a parent's signature. Dad approved. Mom was reluctant, but I went. The first Freedom Ride bus left Washington, D.C. on May 4, 1961. Aboard was a mix of black and white activists, including future Congressman John Lewis. I was the youngest freedom rider on that first trip. We were well-groomed because how we presented ourselves was important. Each night, we stayed with members of congregations who fed us. 
We switched buses each day for safety. We were ordinary people trying to do things to make our lives extraordinary. People taunted us all the way to Alabama. When we got to Aniston, a group of men boarded the bus and came towards us. That is when the beating started. In Birmingham, the next stop, a mob was waiting when we exited the bus. My fellow freedom writer, James Peck, went down almost immediately. I maintained my balance, but had my scalp opened. I got away from the crowds, and as luck would have it, a city bus came by. I got on, and the driver had sympathy. He took me to a safe place. He said, if you go across the tracks, there would be someone there to help you. I ended up in a church where a nurse put a bandage on my head that pulled my scalp together. The beatings made natural news as a pivotal event in the civil rights struggle. I used photographs. The FBI identified the men who beat us. I thought it was a slam-dunk case, but there was no way an all-white jury in the South would convict white men for beating up a black person. I made the entire ride to New Orleans, and when I got back to Atlanta, my mom thought I'd be killed if I stayed in the civil rights movement. Like my father, I chose to serve. I entered the Marine Corps and went to Vietnam. I was exposed to Agent Orange and had cancer and have cancer today. Whenever I have the chance to speak to young people, I tell them they can change the world. I hope they listen to anyone who tells them they have the power to make the world a better place. This is Carolyn with Word Here and There. Take care of yourselves.